and the title is called Seeing the Future. And uh, there's no outline. Because unlike Eric Ping, I cannot see the future. So when June needs me to give her the outline by uh, Wednesday night, I haven't done enough work on the sermon yet to be able to see the future and know uh, exactly what this text is saying and be able to give the outline then. So uh, there's no outline. Because I cannot see the future, we can only, because we are humans, only look back at what has happened. Uh, no one of us, uh, no matter I think how much Eric Ping may claim to do so, uh, be able to see the future. Only God can see the future. We can only look back at what has happened. And looking back at what has happened, what would you say about being a Christian in a nation that was founded upon Christian principles? Uh, Being a Christian in a nation in which you have big churches, where there are churches along every street, where um, music and books and even translations of the Bible serving the rest of the world come out from this nation. I mean, it would seem to be that being a Christian in such a nation would be relatively easy. There would be a lot of support, there are a lot of resources, uh, society and culture would be on your side. Now that would seem to be the case to be a Christian in America. I mean, several years ago, uh, it was the dominant religion, such that if a person was not a believer, if he was an atheist, the God that he didn't believe in was the God of the Bible. See, such that even the, the discussion and the debate were on Christianity's terms. But now, being a Christian in America, if you were to stand up for your beliefs, it might mean that you get thrown in jail. It might mean that if you are a florist or baker or a pizza shop owner, you might be driven out of business because of the stand that you take according to God's word, according to the Bible, that is rejected more and more by the people around you such that the courts cite them and you're being driven out of business. You're being driven to bankruptcy. Now, you would imagine, right, that being a Christian then, you would, you would, you would never think that you will suffer such persecution. But that is exactly what we are seeing in America now. Now, the reason why I say that is because you and I living in Singapore, we can lull ourselves into that sort of complacency. Because just as long as we don't, you know, be too aggressive in evangelizing certain groups, you know, we just, you know, watch the lines and we just do our own thing and, you know, um, make sure we upkeep religious harmony. But, you know, we, we can still gather, we can still have our buildings, we can still have our events, no problem. But what if in the near future or slightly distant future, the time so comes that more and more society, culture, those in power, those with influence, more and more hate what we stand for, more and more hate the God that we choose to worship. And then more and more it would cost 
to be a Christian even here in Singapore? Now that is the question that this passage raises for us. If and when that time comes, will you be able to stand? How will we find the resources to keep on believing? Where will we go to, to, to keep on persevering in obeying God when the pressure is increasing? When the pressure seems as if there's no letting up, when, when there's no end in sight? Will you stand? Will I stand? Will we keep on persevering as Christians? That, that, is, the, that is the question that this passage raises for us. So, uh, as uh, Andrew Leong said, it is not the easiest of passages, but I don't know, I think it's quite straightforward. I mean, there's a vision, and then the, the angel gives the interpretation. So, I mean, it's, it's already all done for us. So, we just have to look at it carefully. Uh, but we do need God's help. That what we do see here, God helps us uh, to really take to heart and be encouraged by. So, let's ask him for that help. Father, you know what we need, and you alone can see the future. So you know what's going to come. You are in control of what is going to come. So you have ordained that we, on this Sunday morning, be spending our time looking and studying and giving our attention to this passage for a reason. So I pray, please help each one of us truly take in the lesson and the message and not think that this is irrelevant to us. But Father, we trust that your word to us will strengthen us, that we will last to the end, holding on to Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So this is uh, the second vision that Daniel receives and is about two, three years after the one we saw uh, last chapter. Okay, so as I said, it is, uh, the vision is given and the interpretation is given uh, in verse 15 onwards. Now, the interesting thing about this chapter is that it is different in language to the previous six. So, the, the book of Daniel, the first chapter and the later chapters are all written in Hebrew, which means only the Jewish people can understand. But chapters 2 to 6 are written in Aramaic, which is the, the language that everyone around reads and understands. So, a question that we can sort of ask is, why, why did Daniel write chapters 2 to 6 in the, you know, the universal language, where starting from here now, chapter 8 onwards is going to be in Hebrew? Well, you remember that there are certain things that happen in chapters 2 to 6, right? You've got two great kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, and they both declare, they both make this universal edict right, to all peoples, nations, everywhere. Right, Daniel's God, he is the true and living God. He is the God that must be worshipped. Now, so that is written in a language that all the people in that time could understand. And it serves as, uh, as publicity. It serves as a track. Okay, all you subsequent rulers know who you are dealing with. Right, when, you, when you deal with the, the Jewish people, this is their God. This is a testimony of these two great kings that have ruled over these people. Their God is the true God. Their God is the, the high king of heaven. So, so chapters 2 to 6 serve as a, as a track for the, the nations around. 
And then chapter 8 onwards, you see there's a different focus. It is no longer talking about the whole sweep of world history, as we saw in chapter 7, but it zooms in on a little bit of it, and it is very concerned about God's people. So it is particular to how God's people will be going through that period. So that's why it's written in Hebrew, so that it is for them to understand, for them to take to heart. This is, this is concerning us. This is what will happen to us. This is what we will have to go through. And so this vision is given. And in the vision, Daniel, after he sees the vision, he sees two angels talking. And uh, one angel, in verse 13, talks to the other one. And then uh, the interpretation is given. Okay, so because it's, uh, it's done this way, we will have to be moving back and forth between the vision and the interpretation. Okay, So uh, try your best to stay with me. Now as we look at the beginning of the vision, we see that there is um, Daniel finds himself in Susa. Now where is Susa? At that time, Susa is like um, Ipola. Okay? It's like this nothing happening place, there's nothing, okay, I mean, those from Ipoh, okay, I'm sorry, but I mean, like, really, financially, politically, it's not, like, the, the, the most happening place. So, Susa at that time is, like, this backwater place. But Susa will turn out to be the capital of the reigning empire. Because Susa will be where the Persian empire will have the capital in 200 years' time. So, Daniel finds himself in Susa, and he sees the ram with two horns. And the interpretation is given that that's the Medo-Persian Empire. Right? One horn is stronger than the other because the Persian side of the empire is stronger than the Medo one. Now, that, that comes, and then straight away, uh, it conquers here and there. But then the next thing he sees is this goat with the great horn. Okay, and we are told that this goat is the kingdom of Greece. And the great horn is the, the great leader, obviously Alexander the Great. And he is so great that you see in verse 5, the vision is given of him crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. Uh, because when Alexander the Great conquered the whole of the Near East, he, he did it in lightning quick time. And um, when he conquered the Medo-Persian Empire, it was also with amazing speed. Within three years, that great empire was taken. And the, the history has it that Alexander the Great came with 35,000 Greek troops against 110,000 Persian troops. And apparently, the Greek troops only suffered 100 losses. So they were, they were that strong, they were that, they were that powerful, uh, outnumbered uh, 3 to 1, but they still won and they only suffered 100 casualties. So within three years, the whole of the Near East was conquered. Now, we are told in verse 8 that the goat became very great. But at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And uh, in history, we can look back, that indeed was the case. Alexander the Great, uh, probably the greatest ruler the world has known, greatest leader. At the height of his power, he had conquered the whole, the, the whole of the known world. He was only... 33 years old. And here it says, the large horn was broken off. And the implication is that it was broken off by God. 
And there are a few accounts of how Alexander the Great died. Uh, the one I like is he was on his chariot and he was suffering intense bowel pain. You know, excruciating pain in his bowels such that, you know, it was like internal torture. And because it was so painful, he, he couldn't concentrate on, on riding the chariot that he got hurled off the chariot, fell headlong, and broke almost all his bones in the body. Okay, so this was the, the great horn of that goat being broken off. Okay? Then we are told that in its place there were four horns that came up. And of course, these are the four generals that took different parts of uh, Alexander the Great's empire. And verse 9, out of them, out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and toward the beautiful land. Okay, so this is, this is the horn that takes the place of one of those four horns. Okay, it started small because, um, and we know this is referring to Antiochus the fourth. Okay, and he came out of that part of Alexander the Great's uh, empire, which was in Syria. Okay, it was known as the Seleucid Empire. And it started small because he wasn't actually heir to the throne. His nephew was. Okay, but through intrigue and bribery, he got the crown and he built his empire and he won a lot of uh, military conquests. So that's how his empire grew. Now this horn, okay, even though it's given the same name as the, the little horn in the last chapter, okay, it is not the same horn. Okay, now... The horn in chapter 7 comes out of the which kingdom? The fourth. This horn comes out of the third one. Okay, so it is not talking about, it's not the same horn. But obviously there are similarities which we will, we will come to. Okay, so this uh, little horn uh, had power to the south, to the east, and toward the beautiful land, meaning that it had intentions on Jerusalem and indeed it invaded Jerusalem. Okay, verse 10, it grew until it reached the host of the heavens and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. Okay, so who are these uh, stars? Who, are, who is the host of the heavens? Now, um, we, we often sing it in songs, uh, the Lord of hosts, and we don't really know what it means, but you know, we just keep singing it. Host actually means uh, army. So this is the Lord with all his armies, right? So the host of the heavens is the army of heaven. And it actually refers to the people who serve and worship the God of heaven. Now in Exodus 12, Israel is called the host of the Lord. So this host of the heavens is referring to God's people. It's not referring to angels, okay? It's referring to, to the Jews, referring to God's people and the starry hosts is the people of God. So this little horn, this Antiochus IV, he attacked. He went to the beautiful land and he attacked God's people. And you see in verse 11, it set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. Now, who is the commander of the army of the Lord? Well, it's not referring to the chief priest or some archangel. The commander of the army of the Lord must be the Lord himself. So Antiochus IV, really, he arrogantly, 
he shook his fist at God. He wanted to do battle with God. And uh, we see what he did was in uh, the second half of verse 11. This horn took away the daily sacrifice from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Now the daily sacrifice is referring to the, the morning and the evening sacrifice of the one lamb that represented the atonement of the whole nation. So what Antiochus IV did was that he banned sacrifices and in the temple he erected an altar to his pagan god, Zeus. And to make sure that no more Jewish sacrifices were offered in this temple, in this altar, anymore to Yahweh, uh, Antiochus took pigs, okay, which were, uh, to the Jews, very, very dirty. Uh, I know we like to eat them, but uh, for the Jews, it is unclean. Okay? And he sacrificed pigs on the altar, desecrating the temple. And we are told... In verse 12, it was because of rebellion that the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. Because of rebellion. Because of Antiochus rebelling? No, I think more naturally it is because of the people of God rebelling against God. Because of the people of God being unfaithful to God, God hands his people over to be disciplined, over for judgment, to a pagan king. Now, we, we know that in history, God, God does that. With the exile, with the Syrians, with the Babylonians, and now with Antiochus IV. Because of the people's rejection and rebellion. Now, there, is, uh, there are a few Jewish books that were written during the time of the, the reign and the persecution of Antiochus. It's called uh, 1 and 2 Maccabees. And in 2 Maccabees, uh, we are told, the, 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 the writer writes, We are suffering like this through our own fault, having sinned against our own God. The result has been terrible. See, so the Jews at the time, they recognized that it was because of their own rebellion. Now what happened was that Antiochus made a decree for the sake of unity in his empire, he wanted all his subjects to be um, uniform. Okay? So all the different people groups were to reject their particular customs and to adopt his. Right? So the Jews were asked to give up their particular way of worshipping God. And history tells us that many Jews did that. They gave up their Jewish practices and they adopted his uh, idol worship. They broke covenant with God. Because there was pressure. Because Antiochus was the sort of king that gave orders to his guards. No mercy. Women, children, if they don't obey, just kill them all. Right? And uh, I can't remember the number now, but is it like 90,000 okay, were massacred? So we are told, uh, verse 12, it prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. And uh, Antiochus, one of the things that he did was he, every copy of the Hebrew scriptures that he could find, he burned them all. 
Like truth was thrown to the ground. Now at this point in the vision, the one angel says to another angel, and this is the question. Right, as Daniel sees it, he, I mean, he sees, he's too short for words, so the angel has to ask the question. How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the lost people. I mean, how long will all this take? And you see that the phrase that the angel says is, the rebellion that causes desolation. Now, what, 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 is, what does this phrase mean exactly? Okay, I think the a helpful way of understanding this is what Antiochus did in erecting the statue uh, of Zeus, the altar to Zeus, and, and sacrificing pigs in the temple. Okay, this was the rebellion. This was his, his abomination. This was the thing that he did against God. Okay? And it caused desolation. Desolation of what? Because of what Antiochus did, it meant that the temple was now desolate. It had no more God-worshipping people. Because there were no more people who could come to this temple and serve and worship God. Because now it was made, uh, it was desecrated. It could no longer serve that purpose. So this is the rebellion that has caused desolation. So how long, how long will it take for this vision to be fulfilled? And then verse 14 the answer is, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. So this 2,300, how do we understand it? Uh, if you divide it, it actually adds up to six years and uh, about four months. So scholars try and find, okay, okay when did Antiochus IV start? you know, doing his dirty business, and when was he defeated, you know, when was he, like, you know, having that intense bowel pain and thrown off, okay. And, you know, some of them say, yeah, yeah, we can fit this six years and four months into, you know, historically that period, okay. Uh, Although it doesn't really quite fit, okay. Now, we need to remember that we are dealing with uh, a type of literature where the numbers don't really uh, mean a literal meaning, but they have a symbolic meaning. So 2,300, what symbolic meaning could it have? Now the best explanation I can, I found, is that six years and four months, okay, is uh, less than seven years. Now seven is the complete number. And there are instances in the Bible where God's judgment he says explicitly uh, in Exodus and Judges, last seven years. Okay, so his, his time period of divine judgment against his people who have rebelled is seven years. So the symbolic understanding of this uh, 2,300 is that God foreshortens. He shortens what he could have actually given, which is the full seven period of his divine judgment, but he shortens it. And it's interestingly given in days, such that God is, he's not just going, okay, six and and three quarter years, but he's counting the days. And one commentator has said that 
he will not let this persecution last one more day than necessary. And then the sanctuary will be re-consecrated. Uh, and indeed, in 164 BC, uh, Judas Maccabees, who led the uprising and rebellion against uh, Antiochus IV, uh, defeated him and rededicated the altar. And that ceremony was called the Hanukkah, which is still celebrated in December by Jews today. Okay, so, um, so Daniel is watching all this. And then in verse 15, there was one who stood before him who looked like a man. And then the man's voice calls out, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And then we are given the interpretation of the meaning of the vision, which is why we know what the meaning of the first part is. And most likely, this person who commands the angel uh, must be the one who looked like a son of man from chapter 7. Okay? Uh, which means it is fulfilled in Jesus. So this one who is given world domination at the end commands the angel Gabriel to give the vision, the meaning of the vision to Daniel. And verse 17, there is another phrase that we need to understand, which is Gabriel says, understand that the vision concerns the time of the end. Now, uh, many people look at this phrase and they straight away jump to, okay, this must be referring to the end just before Jesus returns, right? Really, you know, literally the end. Now, but there is another way of understanding this, uh, and I think the more correct way. Because in uh, verse 19, Gabriel says again, I'm going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. So what is this time of wrath? I've already told you. It is because of God's wrath, His anger, His right judgment against His people because of their rebellion. That's why these things is happening. Which means when the angel Gabriel says the time of the end, he's talking about this specific time in um, you know, the second century, when Antiochus IV was given this power and allowed to persecute God's people as, part, as, as an instrument of God's judgment on his people. So it is not talking about like, you know, some future period just before Jesus returns, but it's talking about uh, you know, 164 years BC. Okay, that's the time of the end. And um, Daniel, after he, he sees all this, he, he, he's exhausted, he's sick, uh, it was beyond his understanding. Now, okay, this is the vision, this is the meaning. What does it mean for us? Well, we can, we can understand that Daniel writing in the 6th century, okay, writing about events 200, 400 years into the future, as subsequent generations of God's people, as they, as they take up the book of Daniel, as they, as they, as they read and as they follow the fulfillment of God's prophecy. And yeah, yeah, really, 
wow, you know, the, the Median Empire and then all the Persian, oh, that's fulfilling the, the rampart. And then they know what's happening next. And then when, when the Greek Empire comes, Alexander the Great, and, and the speed in which he conquers uh, the whole of the Near East, I mean, those with the book of Daniel will see, oh, this is, this is the goat. And when they see the goat coming, God's people know what's happening next. Right? Because they have been prepared. They will, they will look at each other and say, yeah, okay, it's coming up. Okay, this, uh, we, we see now these four horns, okay? These four empires, okay, his generals have, have, have taken over. Okay, out of one of them, okay, will come this horn that will grow great, that will, that will do all these things. So, God's people, because of Daniel's vision here, Daniel chapter 8, they have been prepared. They have been forewarned and therefore forearmed for when this persecution strikes. And why? Why did God give this? So that, of course, they would persevere through it. So, if we were Jews living in that time, or just before that time, Daniel 8, super relevant, right? But, but this is 2,000 years past already. I mean, like, okay, it's good to know that God can see the future, even though, you know, all of us can't, but God can. But what relevance does it have for us in the 21st century? Hundreds and hundreds of years since uh, Antiochus. Now, it is uh, Jesus who helps us the most here. So turn to Mark chapter 13 and verse 14. Now, Mark 13 is even more difficult to interpret than Daniel 8. Okay? But I just want to point out to you uh, some of what Jesus says there. Now, in verse 14, okay, Jesus is talking about a future time. Okay? Like Daniel, he is forewarning and forearming his people of what will happen in the future. And so in verse 14, he says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, what is Jesus referring to here? Now, can you see that Jesus is using a phrase that's found in Daniel 8? Like the, the, the rebellion, the abomination that causes desolation. So in Daniel chapter 8, this rebellion that causes desolation is referring to Antiochus IV in the 2nd century erecting the altar to Zeus and, and sacrificing pigs, okay, on, on God's altar. But in Jesus' time, when he's talking to his disciples, that's already hundreds of years past. But Jesus is talking about a future event. And he's talking about a future event using the language of Daniel 8. Because his disciples would understand Daniel 8. So, this future event that Jesus is referring to uh, is what happens in AD 70. Okay, 30, 40 years after Jesus says this, when the Roman army comes into Jerusalem and destroys the temple. Not just sacrifice pigs, not just erect pagan idol, but it destroys the whole temple. Okay, and the the whole of Jerusalem is, is flattened and people have to run to the mountains. Okay, in terms of the number of people uh, as a percentage of the population that is killed, 
it is, it is one of the highest in world history. Okay, so Jesus is using the language of Daniel 8 and referring to a future event. Okay, but you see, verse 20, If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. Now, you see, this is what we have seen here in Daniel 8. Right? God could have given the full seven years of his judgment, but he shortens it. And we are told here that he shortens it because of the elect, so that we will survive. Now, then he goes on and says a few things, but see what will happen in uh, what he says in verse 24. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, okay, he says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Okay. Now, can you see what has happened here? Jesus uses the language of Daniel 8, talks about a future event which we know is the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70 because the people, it's talking about a particular place, Judea, they will run to the mountains. But somewhere between that and verse 24, Jesus actually talks about all the way right to the end because he says, after that, he will return. Right, the language is very clear that Jesus comes on the clouds of heaven, he comes, everybody sees in great power and he gathers, he elects. All his people will be gathered and they will receive the kingdom. So, what Daniel is doing for his people in preparing them for the persecution of Antiochus, that abomination that causes desolation, Jesus uses that for his disciples and uses that for us, subsequent generations, there will always be this little horn that will come, that will persecute, that will cause great destruction, that will trample on God's people. And this will be our lot until the Son of Man returns in power. So do not, because as you look around in, you know, uh, relatively persecution-free Singapore, that you think, I just, you know, um, make sure I tithe, make sure I'm on the roster, I just come to church. And I mean, this is all it takes to be a Christian. No, Daniel chapter 8, Mark 13, many, many parts of the Bible is preparing us for a time when there may be Great suffering, great persecution. That it would seem as if the pressure is increasing and it seems as if there's no end in sight. And the question is, how will you do when that time comes? Okay, you, you, you mustn't think of it as, okay, okay, if it comes, if it comes then, then, you know, then I'll deal with it then. No, no, the reason why God has given us this is so that we can be forewarned and forearmed. Not ask if, but, but okay, we know that it's going to come. How will we keep faith with God? 
Will we keep standing for Him, holding on to Him? Even when all the things that we take for granted, like, yeah, yeah, I mean, can't, can't we gather? Isn't it alright that I gather with other Christians on Sunday? Maybe the time will come when that's taken away. Maybe the time will come when the, 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 the right to have a Bible in your hand is taken away as well. When, if you say anything against abortion, or you say anything against same-sex marriage, that will get you thrown into jail. Say anything against other religions, that will get you thrown into jail. What if that day comes? Will you stand? Will you be able to stand? The Bible is telling us that day will come. How will we stand? Where can we find hope when it is getting darker and darker, blacker and blacker. But there was a day in which it was very dark. You see, when Daniel 8 talks about Antiochus, you know, he was trying to, to fight against God. He was trying to do battle against the, the, the prince of the host of heaven. And what he did was he went to God's temple, desecrated it. I mean, he did... Um, untold suffering on God's people. But you see, he never touched God himself. God, God himself remained untouched. But there was a day when God came. God himself came and God himself came as a man and he allowed himself to be spat at, to be punched. He allowed himself to be crucified. It was a very dark day because even the sun was not shining then. And we are told that it was because of rebellion that that day came. Because of our rebellion, because of our rejection of God. And what was happening on that cross was Jesus, the God-man, bearing our rebellion, bearing that time of wrath on Himself. Right, He, in John chapter 2, where he identified himself as the true temple, was completely desecrated, crucified, mocked, humiliated. But you see, after three days, that true temple rose again. That, that ultimate meeting point between God and man was raised from the dead. The Antiochus, he could desecrate the temple. The Romans, they came, they could destroy the temple. But this temple, the true temple, God has raised never to die again. Such that our meeting point, our meeting place with God is forever secure. So that when the darkness comes, when you find yourself walking through that valley of shadow and death, know that your shepherd is with you because he is ever alive. He is ever powerful. That's where we must find hope. And it is not when that time comes, then we start building our hope in Him. It is now. Now, friends, steal yourself from when the time will come so that we will last till the end. Now we must find our hope not in our wealth. We must find our security not in our bank account. We must find our hope in Him, the one who allowed Himself to be desecrated for us and is now alive, now is the Lord. We must find our hope in Him now. May God help us to do that.
Amen.